split limb from limb and your intestines are hanging out on, on your knees. Probably is fine in a DCC game. It's probably not okay in New Thank You Evil. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, that's a new, like, two poles on a scale. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Shuttered Post Office in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 262 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're celebrating five years of this podcasting experiment with a mailbag episode where we are answering all of your questions, both technical and inappropriately personal. And later, a Buffy Summers stakes her claim in the Character Creation Forge. Gather round, travelers, to hear our tale. Venture Maidens is an actual play 5th edition podcast made by four longtime friends and lifetime gamers. We take our role-playing as seriously as we keep our bulges tasteful. So if you're looking for an epic high fantasy tale spun by a killer cast, give us a shot. We publish new episodes every other week and live stream our game recordings on Twitch. Now get on out there and download Venture Maidens wherever podcasts are free. Hope to see you in the community, and don't forget to venture away. All right, so as we said, this week we're taking a break from the usual format. The Gates of Morning recap will be back next week, because this, this is a mailbag. It's a strangely numbered mailbag, Shane. It is. It didn't fall on an even 50 this year. We didn't cheat. <laughs> I mean, we'll probably do one for 300, assuming, you know, the world still exists, I guess. Right. <laughs> I would like to do them more often. Um, I think we actually could could get enough questions to do them more often. For we only did them originally like every year because we didn't have enough listeners. <laughs> we would have run out of questions in like two mailbags. I mean, so go ahead and send them in now. We're saving them uh, up for the the next mailbag. But yeah, two sixty two is is five years. Is like actually exactly five years. This episode is out on the same day of the year as episode one, because I guess we crammed in two leap years into those five years. We did it. Crammed in a lot of other garbage in those five years. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so for you know, for all of you who uh, have been listening to us this whole time, and we know there are a few of you, because a few of you wrote in, uh, and anyone new, uh, thanks for being here. Without listeners, without patrons, without Discord, without followers on uh facebook and twitter um i mean we we could not have been doing this still <laughs> it's just just would not be possible so, yeah um thank you from the bottom of our hearts our home group would have just murdered us by now because they'd be like please stop talking we don't care what you think <laughs> stop stop talking into the ether <laughs> so normally with uh mailbags we get something wacky to drink of course we are in the middle of coronavirus and i hope someday someone is listening to this when we are not <laughs> during coronavirus lockdown but shane uh what is it that you are drinking currently right now i am drinking coffee and i have just a nip of bourbon in it i'm i'm quite happy for you that's good i'm also i'm also drinking a coffee because i guess it's a, a decaf coffee because that's what life is these days <laughs> pointless pointless bean <laughs> juice <laughs> it is delicious soy milk unsweetened okay <laughs> all right so let's dive right on in first question comes from snark night and hey this one's from uh, an email from a little while back so you know follow uh follow his uh, example snark night writes 
Can you share some creative uses that you or your players have done with the command spell? Quick refresher, command spell is one of those age-old spells where you have to get creative because it allows you to use one word and an enemy who fails their save has to follow that single word command to the best of their abilities. But of course, it can't be something that you know is going to cause them uh, direct harm or get them killed. Of course, there are ways to get them killed or cause them direct harm. Like making them walk into traps. That they don't know about, right? Right. That's a great one, right? If you've been able to set up an ambush um, or you uh, have a, an invisible ally or something like that. But so two times that we have actually used this that I recall. Um, one was actually in Gates of Morning. Uh, it's already in the recap, so this isn't a spoiler. Uh, the party was fighting assassins who were on rooftops about 40 feet up. And Angelo was playing the uh, shifter, Bramble, and used command on one of the bandits and told him, like, drop, which is, you know, I think, one of the, like, basic commands that uh, it lists as an example. And the assassin, you know, of course, he's not going to, like, jump off the, the roof because that's going to hurt himself, but he dropped his weapons. And, of course, normally that's not a problem because you can just pick it up right away and, you know, you haven't lost any actions. But because he was on the edge of the roof, like standing literally on the edge of the roof, they plummeted 40 feet to the ground and now he was weaponless. Finally, the exact <laughs> contrivance required to make drop useful. <laughs> there was one other time that I remember. It was in our Dark Sun game. Do you remember this, Shane, where command actually was useful? I do not. I don't remember a lot of our Dark Sun game. I was drinking a lot during that time. <laughs> so... Uh, this isn't spoilers because we're not really going to recap in entirety the the Dark Zone game that Angela ran. Um, anyway, it's near the end of the entire campaign, so things are getting crazy, and we're fighting the dragon. The the named dragon, the only one who exists in Athos. Right. Uh, you know you're going to die because he is basically the most powerful creature in the game at that point, and we were playing like a B team, so like our whole point was to go out there and die. So you know it was fine. We're just trying to carry out the mission, which is get uh get information to the the rest of our mercenary company uh however there was uh, some sort of you know macguffin magic that kept us from communicating with the dragon the dragon wasn't actually our adversary but the dragon didn't know that and we were trying to trying to tell the dragon hey actually you are being manipulated and no matter what we said or how we communicated the dragon was just unable to comprehend anything that we were saying so one of us commanded a nearby enemy to repeat the words that we said. So cast command, say, repeat. The enemy fails. Say the message that you want to say to the dragon, and then this person simply just repeats it, and the dragon hears that. Other than that, I don't know that I've ever seen useful <laughs> yeah. castings of command. It, it is one of those things where, like, you know, it, it, the basic stuff is just the setup, right? So grovel so they fall prone and somebody else walks up and hits them. Um you know, flee so you trigger opportunity attacks. Uh, well, no, even that won't work. Um, like, you know, approach so they'll come towards you and, and make things easier, separate themselves from their enemies. Like, it's all the kind of basic stuff. Like, I don't think command, unfortunately, gets the same level of uh, scrutiny that wish does. <laughs> you know, like some of the other interpretive creative spells, like command, it gives you a, a few obvious uses, and I, that's mostly what I see for command. Yeah, I mean, you do have people who, who start getting creative with like, all right, can I come up with a word in, in German that's actually an entire sentence? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's going to be table dependent. You didn't say that I couldn't command in Dwarvish. <laughs>
from Awful Monk, we have, my question is about critical hit decks. What are your guys' opinions about them? We talked about this a bit last episode when we talked about critical hits and fumbles. Go back and listen to that, but in general, those are a bad idea because they make things much more swingy, and that uh, usually is a detriment to the players. And also, they introduce a lot of like typically zany randomness to a game that probably doesn't have zany randomness at its core if it didn't come with a crit deck um, and have one that's actually tailored to its purpose. Um, you know, there are games that do this a lot better. Um, things like uh, Knights Black Agent Solo Ops, right? Like the Gumshoe One to One system. It's not exactly a critical hit deck, but it is a, um, you know, it, it can result in random like damage conditions, um, but it puts them in a much more like constrained sort of thematic way than, you know, your split limb from limb and your intestines are hanging out on, on your knees and uh, like it's game over for you. How do you come back from this? Like y- you tend not to run into that problem if you're you know, playing a game that isn't about zany critical hits. Usually you're buying like a third-party critical hit deck and you're using it at whatever game you're playing. Obviously, that is going to depend on tone and system. Like, you know, it's probably is fine in a DCC game. It's probably not okay in New Thank You Evil. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, that's a new, that's a new, like, <laughs> like two poles on a scale <laughs> one one way that i actually really like to use critical hit decks though is in a one shot or or in a longer term campaign to specifically set the mood so you know you pull out a, a critical hit deck in a in a game that you've been playing for a long time now people know that like either this is sort of a, like a, a wacky session that we're doing or it's actually an extremely serious session and things could go very, very wrong. Um, I would probably use it in a situation where like the party doesn't necessarily know that they're in some sort of simulation or a dream or something like that, right? So people are getting rendered limb from limb or there's weird slapstick effects or you know, you throw your sword or, or whatever. Um, and like that often doesn't contribute to the idea of that players have of their characters but it's fine if it turned out that like it was a one session dream sequence and you didn't know that and part of the way that you could figure that out is all of this crazy stuff that was happening that sounds like an answer in search of a question not a question in search of an answer to me (laughs) i bought this critical hit deck when can i use it (laughs) exactly (laughs) uh use it in the moorland you're playing an eberron game your uh players are going there they know that the moorland is terrible and awful things can definitely happen there and you often have bad luck use that i mean i think that's very thematic Alrighty, let's keep moving. Uh, this is from C. Beck. Two questions. First of all, when will we hear Shane Wax poetic about how stupid in-game currency is and his ideas on removing it completely? When will we hear about that, Shane? Uh, I'll do it now. It's fine. <laughs> so I, I don't like in-game currency because I think it should be just translated directly into the valuable thing that you're looking for right whatever the ultimate end usable resources is what you should do currency is an abstraction layer that facilitates trade games most of them anyway are not about trade they're about killing monsters or you know opposing uh you know corporal uh dystopian states like play play the thing towards the objective of the game not towards some silly like real world simulation of dollars and cents that's my point of view so then what is your alternative to using currency because usually you know there's no currency system in most games it's just hey this is how much you might get and this is how much things cost 
Yeah, I mean, it depends on the game, but generally I would rather see you get resources in an abstract as a reward, right? So if it's uh, like, you know, if you're playing uh, Scum and Villainy or, you know, some some like uh, Smugglers on the Rim kind of game, then, you know, it's probably fuel and contacts and leads and, uh, you know, maybe like energy cells or whatever it is right what are the things that keep you running what are the things that are important to you as a character in order to keep doing your job that's what you should be getting as a reward forget the currency yes in theory you could exchange them but it's also not that hard narratively to say like oh no we have a ton of oil and we have no salt <laughs> like what do we do well now you have an adventure to figure out how to turn your oil into salt and that's good Sometimes you'll have people who want to work out an entire like wealth level requisition acquisition system with roles based on particular stats. And, you know, some games have that built in. However, I think sometimes that turns into an even an even harder complication than simply just paying people an amount and then having a list of prices. Right. Like everybody knows how money works right but you if you have to learn an entire system about like what is our wealth level and what does that get us and what does that abstraction mean then you're just overcomplicating things right the only reason i would build that kind of system is if i weren't the one who's physically there to hand wave it <laughs> like you know like the only time i make those suggestions is when it's for somebody else to use because they can't just do the math in in their head because they're not me right but that's the way that i look at it is like even like say low level D and D, right? Like whatever equipment you need, you have it. If you can carry it, you have it. If it's something specialized, you need to do something to get it. Um, and probably the only exception on like the mundane equipment list is going to be like full plate, and you're going to get it by adventure like at level two or three, right? Like like session number two or three, you should have the gear that you want. Gear basic level gear is not the fun of D and D. Um, which is why there's nothing to do with money after you buy your gear. Like if it were the point, there'd be more to do with your money. Yeah. I mean, it would be easy enough to just like say mundane gear is basically like common level in terms of like yeah. the magic item rarity in, in fifth edition and just say, right. Give, give the characters a wealth level. Like you, you know, your fifth level adventures, common items are basically free and, you know, attach them to the attunement system rather than and, and the um, encumbrance system. Or skip that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just be like, you can, you have what you want. If an extra staff of bird calls is not going to break this game. Exactly. <laughs> In fact, it might make it better. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Next question from Seabeck. How do you come up with adventure seeds? Where do you get your ideas from? I steal them. Same. Absolutely. Just, uh, you know, you're watching anything, you're reading anything, you're talking to somebody and, and you go, wow, that's really cool. I I make a note like when I get home or I write it down in my phone, just I'm going to use this. I was watching Solo and not a spoiler. Uh, there's a, basically a fight with uh, pirates on flying speeder bikes. I saw that and went, that's super cool. And I'm definitely using that. I haven't yet, but it's happening somewhere. Same thing. I read novels. I watch television. I watch film. Uh, I listen to actual play podcasts. I listen to historical content podcasts um anything that tells a story is a story that i'm going to steal because i'm not creative enough to not steal and you know there are new, no new stories <laughs> right <laughs> it's all biblical baby <laughs> and you know you're going to file off the serial numbers so people don't necessarily recognize it like are they going to be speeder bikes uh um are are they going to be pirates uh but like there's going to be some sort of like cool chase fight 
in the air thing that people are going to love. And if they actually do recognize it because I basically ripped it off wholesale and didn't change things, a lot of people will probably actually say, oh, oh my God, that's so cool. This is from Solo. I know exactly what the objective is. Um, I know what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. Also real life sometimes because real life is so insane these days. Uh, but especially yeah, like... the news. <laughs> the news is great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, political intrigue, anything like that, like sometimes you want a game that that can that is trying to make a, a point like you know a very special episode of law and order or whatever uh, and that's i think a lot of fun for like one session or if you want to you know even develop an entire campaign concept around it that's how people come up with ideas for tv shows honestly <laughs> next question from asterian lives got any good battle music recommendations well, we haven't used battle music in a long time because we haven't been around a table. But what we used to do is just play Spotify on my iPad and uh, and listen to whatever I searched for first, which was always either Dungeons and Dragons, which produces a couple different playlists uh, that other people have pulled together, or some Hans Zimmer score. Yeah, um, I will say, you know, listen to it first. And, you know, if you really want to get into, th into this, like you want to spend some time on it, sort of track where the beat changes are because sometimes you'll get like a long 30 minute either playlist or like one song that sort of blends into itself and one time we were having sort of like an arc ending big battle in gates of morning and then i think like right as the combat got pretty intense it switched over to tavern music <laughs> and there's just like bum, bum, <laughs> ba, da, da, da. <laughs> well we didn't win on time that's all <laughs> right you guys were too slow um <laughs> i've heard good things about sirenscape yep sirenscape is another thing that people use uh, we have been by their booth at previous Gen Cons, um, and the the like quality of the the sound effects and the music is very good. All right, this one comes from the Dork of Many Things. You mentioned in an earlier ma mailbag that Ishin interviewed Shane for a position in the group. What were you looking for in someone to join the group? In your experience, what are the characteristics that give an individual longevity in a group, or the group stability? I mean, I'll, why are you asking me? Obviously, I screwed up because we, we yeah. got Shane. <laughs> <laughs> got him. Um, so, yes, we we did kind of interview Shane. Um, we found the last three members of our group on Reddit. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, of the eight people in our group, three are white men. Uh, and those are you three who we found on Reddit. In fairness... We also found other people on Reddit that just didn't work out in our group for one reason or another. Right. And I think, so you you got like kind of an interview in that you, we like talked about your character, like you and I over like Gchat basically mm -hmm. before you had met the rest of the group so I could figure out like where to put you in the game that I was running. And then you, I just gave you the address of like Angelo and Susie's house in the South Bronx and said, show up here. <laughs> Yeah, show up to this random apartment in the Bronx that doesn't have my name on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ring a doorbell that has a random name on it um, and see what happens. So I definitely had to like text my friends like, here's where I'm going. If I'm good, I'll check in in 30 minutes. If right. I don't, call the cops. <laughs> um, and then like, you know, the, that first session is, I mean, it's basically a, a date and, you know, first dates are interviews. So... We're just like seeing if we get along. Do we do we like vibe? Are you interested in like this story and and you know how people are on the table? Because like, you know, when it's not coronavirus, half or more of this entire hobby is like hanging out with 
with people and, and seeing like how you get along. Yeah, I think uh, we were picking up, you guys were picking up Morning Glory um, in Zendrick, like the first session in Zendrick. And so it came along with a large slideshow um, <laughs> that caught everybody back up on where they were in the story, which is very helpful for me. <laughs> uh, we actually did actually interview Brian, the last person to join our group. Do you remember we like met at a yeah, bar we, first? We met at a bar for drinks first. And part of that was because it was my apartment um, that we were playing at. And I wasn't comfortable having a stranger in my apartment where, you know, my not necessarily gaming consenting partner lives. <laughs> a little bit different for Angelo and Susie. They were both in the group. Yeah. And we met up and then all just hung out uh, at the bar like we got a table we got some food which again is more than half of what game night would actually be we didn't play a game but you know we just sort of like talked like people who are getting to know each other and like meeting at a you know a, a party for the first time like what kind of stuff do you like and you know we, we saw if if brian got our humor and if we got his humor and you know that meshed pretty well so then we invited him you know to the actual game the next the following week yeah, unfortunately, we now hang out with each other outside of game night. So it's important that you can hang out with us outside of game night now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like to drink the same things we like to drink? Right. How are you on mid-grade bourbon? <laughs> <laughs> what about low-grade bourbon? I'm liking you a little more now. So in terms of what you're looking for for someone to join the group, I mean, yeah, you basically want someone who can like who can hang and and be fine and fun and can contribute. Um, I would also say you want someone who can, you know, stay focused, uh, someone who can contribute meaningfully on the game aspect rather than just the socializing aspect. Because, like, we have tons of friends we could invite, you know? Yeah, I think you also want somebody who's going to be, you know, a consistent participator, um, someone who has a stable schedule. Things like that make it easier to just make sure that they're actually showing up when they're committed to. Um, nothing more frustrating than the person who always cancels last minute. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've been explicit in this, but I think we probably would going forward. Um, you know, making sure that someone is cool with getting along with other people and making sure that everyone at the table feels comfortable at all times. You know, I don't think we've brought up uh, social contract ex explicitly or X card explicitly in like a pre gaming interview, but you know, I, I I think we would now just to be like I would now, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean. You're fine with this, right? Not even like, are you fine with this? But like, here's here's how our group works. You know, you should be fine with this. Well, yeah, it, it should be more explicit, I think, because you have an established dynamic in your group. It's not about establishing a group dynamic for six people who haven't played together. It's about one person consenting to the dynamic that five other people have already agreed to, right? Like, you need to be kind of explicit in that and that it might not be a good match. Um, and then, you know, I think once you're in the group, like those norms shift and change and they have an equal voice in that. In terms of group stability, I, I think it's fine to be sort of upfront. You know, like you said, how often are you going to be able to make it? You know, what kind of job do you have in, in terms of, you know, working late or canceling last minute or things like that? Um, when Steph joined the group, she so Cameron brought Steph on because they were dating. And I voiced my concern at the table before Steph showed up that like, you know, we've all had problems before where someone's significant other joins and they're only here because of the significant other. And like, if that person doesn't show up one week, then do you actually lose two people? And that makes the group super swingy. And like part of the contract was Steph was like, no, I'll, I'll come even without Cameron. It'll be it'll be fine. I'm interested enough. 
Uh, and it turns out she's been much more consistent than Cameron over the years. Turns out that Cameron is the casual boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Next question from Red Punker. Uh, and a, a bit of a follow-up from Janessa Squatch. From Red Punker, do y'all have any homebrew or custom table rules in general and or for any particular systems? And Janessa Squatch, what is your favorite house rule for 5e? I think probably the most consistent one we'll use is in 5th edition D&D, we scrap the uh, multi-classing stat requirements. So like you don't have to have, you know, 13 strength and 13 charisma to multi-class into or out of Paladin just because we kind of like being able to mix and match wacky random combos. I still make my characters legal. <laughs> I'm glad you do. Uh, yeah, that's one of them. Um, I would say... Uh, table rules i we almost exclusively use milestone leveling i think the only system that we don't is like forged in the dark games where you get experience at the end of each session yeah i mean we technically used experience in dark heresy but it functioned like milestone leveling yeah it was giving you fixed increments at the end of every session <laughs> like you don't get experience for tasks it's just points to spend right right i'm sure that we have house rules for 5e that like are just us misplaying the book out of like bad habit, you know, like I think we probably overweight the value of a 20 in a skill check, mostly because the person who rolls a 20 goes, this is the best possible outcome that I could ever hope for in this skill. What does that mean? <laughs> right. And then uh, we, we probably, we don't do like crit fumbles or, or like crits on, on skill checks, but like on a one, there is uh, probably something more happens. You know what I mean? Like you never like lose your action or, or break something except in Dark Sun when like that house rule was, you know, you break something. Um, but I, I think usually, you know, some in a social skill check, someone will, you know, end up getting made a fool of or you'll lose an opportunity or something like that. Maybe the, the rule that we probably have homebrewed the most is how we treat our safety mechanics, which is largely by yelling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> But it works for us. <laughs> like, it's a lot of, no, F that, we're not doing that, stop, like, undo, you know, like, and then yelling at each other. And it works because we tend to end up in the right spot afterwards. Um, I'd also say, let's see, I mean, these aren't really house rules. Uh, if you roll a die and it's cocked, you roll it again. Um, I think this is an unspoken house rule that we have. If you are making a life or death roll, you need to roll in the middle of the table in front of everyone while basically like half the group is standing up and staring right at where you're about to roll it because we're also very excited. Yeah, and that tends to apply for the GM too. Yeah, exactly. Like, are you going to die? Let's let's find out. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, often we're sort of like spread around somebody's living room and, you know, you're like rolling next to your food or whatever. But like if this is a, your last death save, like come to the center table, put it, put it right in the middle, like so we can all like, you know, commiserate or celebrate together. Right, to, to the ritual of destruction. Right. <laughs> oh, and we definitely like kind of fudge the 5e um, bonus action spell rule. We try to stick to it, but we ignore the times when like it makes it a dumb outcome when like you're just screwing yourself because of the order in which you cast the spell. Yeah, like the... Um, so it's the sorcerer quicken spell is the one that always causes a problem uh, where if you cast a spell with your action, you can't bonus action your cantrip. Like, that's stupid. So we just, sure, if you resolve the the casting 
with your action first, you bonus action the cantrip. You still can't cast two spells. It's right. We, we still do stick to the rules as intended for that rule. Right. All right. This next one comes from Shinigami. If you had to pick one source book from a previous edition to recommend cannibalizing for 5e, what would it be? And what's your favorite game night food that isn't pizza? So it's hard to pick a source book from second edition or earlier simply because those are much harder to cannibalize for fifth edition specifically because of, you know, just the the way that the resolution system works. Shane, I think I know what you're going to pick and it's high on my list too. Because when you said it's hard to pick, I was like, no, it's not. And then I'm <laughs> glad I didn't interrupt you. <laughs> so yeah, what's yours? Stormrack, yeah, third edition. Of course, it's Stormrack, <laughs> which is the uh, which is the guide to seas, seafaring, and piracy. Um, it does a great job of of introducing like uh, how to adventure underwater, how to adventure in coastal uh, settings. It builds out a whole kind of like um, ecosystem for like seafaring and and coastal living races. Um, that's where the Hadozi, the Darfelon, like those um, orca folk and um, I guess like orangutan folk who live in the uh, in the like within the lines of a of a tall ship kind of thing. Flying monkey um, folk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's cool. Like I, I like that book a lot. I like what it does for dealing with storms and some of its ideas for adventures under the water. Uh, it was pretty much the whole reason that I wanted. I've been wanting to run a pirate campaign for forever is because of that book. So someday soon. <laughs> It's super adaptable too because like it's mostly lore and then just ideas for how to run ship stuff. Um, that whole environmental series from 3.5 is good. There's Stormwreck, there's Frostburn, which is uh, the Arctic and Antarctic, and then there's Sandstorm, which is deserts. Yep. Um, if I had to pick one, okay, this is to cannibalize for 5e, so it's not my favorite book because Tome of Battle is my favorite book. Um, I, I would say... 3.5 had a series on different kinds of monsters that was very good. There was Libris Mortis that was on the undead. There was Lords of Madness, which was on aberrations. All really excellent. Lots of lore. Uh, really builds out those those kinds of monsters and like how they function and what their societies are like. But the one I would probably pick is Draconomicon. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it's on the tin. <laughs> and and that's the one that like talks about dragon society talks about dragon physiology and like there are you know gray's anatomy type diagrams of like wings and and things and like goes a little bit into explaining how this might work and like what part of a dragon is magical and what part of a dragon is just like you know a, a terrifying demon beast i will say i miss that about previous editions uh and i don't think fourth edition did a good job of this either but i think just the the sheer bloat of third edition allowed them to do these kinds of books where somebody just waxed poetic and dumped a bunch of lore in a book mm -hmm. with some beautiful art and it was a fun book to read i never feel that about fifth edition books you know it's like i'm scouring it for useful tidbits i might possibly be able to use in a pile of stuff that is either repeated or, you know, mechanical nonsense that isn't directly relevant to me. Like, where are those books? Where's the Draconomicon? You know, the ones that like inspire you to play games again. Um, that's, I think that there's a, that's missing for me in fifth edition. Maybe other people don't have that experience, but that's sort of been a gap for me. I would agree with you. Um, I get some of that from some like original and like AD&D books as well, where it sort of almost reads more like 
a story and you know random lore and fun interesting stuff but you look at something like the draconomicon and like you know that's where i'm getting an adventure seed from right i'm right. reading this and going oh council of worms yeah okay everybody's a dragon that's what we're gonna do uh okay so favorite game night food that isn't pizza this is a good question because it when i gm I always eat pizza because it is easy to eat. It takes one hand. I can still like be taking notes or rolling dice or whatever. And when I'm not GMing, I never eat pizza. I got in the habit when I was GMing of uh, eating, like I need food that keeps my hands clean um, because I'm OCD about it. But also GMing is even worse because I got to touch a lot of stuff. Uh, so I got in the habit of eating boneless wings, um, which is basically a, you know, a chicken finger uh in buffalo sauce so now i just eat chicken fingers uh there's a local chain in new york called sticky's finger joint um that's known for like um their crunchy tenders and um also their sauces so i dip it in their sticky sauce i mean it's also helpful that you know six of the people at the table will all go in on a single order that also helps <laughs> cuts down on the you know amortize the delivery fee well and also <laughs> like i mean you're gonna eat it half a bucket at chicken i mean okay i'll eat a half a bucket of chicken too and then we won't have to feel bad about it right exactly yeah so that's the other thing <laughs> that that couple of weeks where we were ordering mcdonald's was super God. bad like it was like monday gluttony <laughs> it was like uh at uh, the last thrillicon when we all decided to order wendy's so that we could play the the wendy's rpg uh, and we never ate wendy's again uh no no i think it's the first time in like 15 years that i ate wendy's uh for me okay if i'm gonna pick one thing it's probably gonna be like dim sum um we're in new york you know there are, wherever we're gaming there's always a ton of great dim sum that will deliver around um it's small bite-sized you can use chopstick if you chopsticks if you want um you they're very shareable uh and they're delicious all right next up from our get what are your favorite classes to play doesn't have to be dnd uh, I love playing archer i've realized this <laughs> that's <laughs> that's it not uh, archers like no, no, Archer, <laughs> the uh, animated spy. Um, I, I like the combination of like savvy, but not like uh, invulnerable. And I like the combat competent, but not like a superhero. Um, so if I can find the thing that's like sort of that, not quite jack of all trades, right? But like just sort of the uh, like dex charisma, um, that's sort of the class that I like to look for. You also like that he's, you know, a, a big jerk and it's in character. Yeah, I like that I don't have to go too far. I can just let my id do the work. Um, all right, so in D&D, &D, my, my favorite class is Ranger. It is, however, not my favorite class to play in 5th edition because it's mostly terrible. Um, oh, right. No, Ranger is obviously my favorite class to ever exist. I've just never had fun playing it. <laughs> it was great in 4th edition. All right. Um, right. So like I said, I've never played it. Yeah. I would say I probably like... In, in terms of an archetype, the sniper. Um, and that's not something that I think I would have known about me before I played a bunch of different games. But like, you know, I'll I'll play the Hound in, you know, Blades in the Dark. Uh, that's the thing I, I gravitate to. Like one big long range gun, one big hit. Like, you know, it, it sort of checks my boxes of like, I want to do a bunch of damage. I want to see big numbers. 
Um, like I like having good defenses. And in this case, all that is, is like hiding very well. I like to be good at, you know, skills and things like that. And, and, you know, snipers need, need to essentially be Rangers. Right. And, you know, if you were playing in D and D, then, you know, um, someone with a, a bow 600 feet away, uh, taking someone out is probably the closest you get to a sniper. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I, I'm like the exact opposite for, I think, and I'm, I would guess that this got crystallized for you in dark heresy. <laughs> Uh, because I think that's the first time I saw you bring a sniper build fully online and actually enjoy not being a participant in combat. <laughs> yeah, what do you do this around? Um, I reposition slightly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> two steps to the left, two steps to the right. <laughs> I also think it, uh, like those kinds of characters, probably give me a chance to sort of step back from the social interaction. I like playing social characters. I like playing faces and I, I always like contribute to a group, but sometimes it's, it's nice to sort of like play against type um, and, and just like give other people a chance to like be the one conversing with the the GM and, and you know, decide where the, the story is kind of going to go for a little while. And then just put on that lens of like, all right, this now becomes the mission, whatever, like this person rolled over here. Now all I have to decide is how do I best execute this mission? Yeah, I can definitely see that pattern. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like, I think, uh, I think where I come is I like the, I like the tankier build who's kind of in the middle of things, um, but is sort of self-sustaining, right? So like, I like playing rogue. Um, I like playing like, barbarian um things like that like just where you're like i like i like my characters to get beat up but not die <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i also like the the big melee tank who like runs in and smashes things um in our lancer game i'm playing a melee tokugawa so anyone who has played lancer knows what that means yeah and in lancer i'm playing genji who if i get hit <laughs> i'm dead <laughs> all right next question from kermit the pog if you were going to play or run a game in a historical era, what would you choose? This is this is actually a tough question for me because the, the question isn't like, you know, what historical references do you want to draw on for a game, right? So it's not, it's not revisionist history. It's what historical era do you want to play in? And mm -hmm. it's difficult for me to think of many historical eras where coming from a modern lens you you don't then immediately think hey i'm like a rich lord who you know is a, a paladin and has a squire and rides horses and like your first instinct is i will free all my serfs you know because <laughs> like most of history is terrible yeah i mean you have to just accept the baseline that like you know you're playing a character who in the scheme of things is not a good person <laughs> right, right if you're a person who has agency yeah right uh, which is why my answer is obviously drawing on the theme. I would like to play in the age of sale um, because you have the first true democratic like agitators in uh, in colonial history are the pirates of the Caribbean. Um, you know, whereas like the piracy in the Mediterranean was often more state sponsored. It was truly independent. Um, it was multicultural. It was um, accepting of far more uh sexualities and gender expressions than were allowed in Victorian England for sure or whatever Georgian England I guess um so it is it is a far more liberal environment to be a part of and you get to be the punks who are you know ruining Port Royal or uh, whatever you know Spanish colony you want to pilfer um and you don't have the uncomfortable thing to deal with with slavery you can just 
free slaves and let them join your crew or free slaves and let them do whatever they want to do. Yeah, uh, you, you can, can be those be pirates who do that because there were pirates who did that. Right. Um, and for inspiration, I love uh, Black Sails on Stars because that's more or less the plot. Uh, let's see. I would love a, honestly, Moana game. Uh, Contiki, like, uh, except, you know, not not a bunch of white guys. Um, like, uh, you know, Polynesians uh, sailing from island to island uh, across the Pacific basically somewhere where like literally no humans ever have ever been before. Um, I think that would be really interesting. And then also maybe like a three musketeers game, um, you know, late Renaissance uh, France or Italy uh, where you can still get like that class conflict where you're having the first rumblings of, you know, democracy or like fighting or, or not fighting the monarchy, right? Because they're they're certainly still very monarchist. Uh, but you know, talking about the shortcomings of of the monarchy, and you know, how does tradition meld with you know giving more people agency? I think that's really interesting. And then also just you know, tabards and and rapiers and horses is, and big plumes is super cool. An era that I, I'm always down for is sort of the. Uh the late 1800s uh in the american west so your your typical kind of western setting um obviously there's some problematic stuff with how we dealt with native americans and things like that you want to kind of mm, ignore that more or less if you can um not necessarily engage with that uh but you know the west is uh untamed wilderness full of adventure and threats uh and gold so uh, that's a fun start to an adventure um and i also like don't have any way that I would do this or, or any plan for it, but I, I really enjoy like Napoleonic history, hmm. um, mostly from the British perspective, because, you know, kicking Napoleon's ass is always fun. Um, so like playing a Band of Blades type game um, in the Napoleonic Wars, right? Like a unit within uh, Wellington's army or something, I think would be a really interesting way that you kind of fall back uh, across Spain to Portugal and then try to re-liberate <laughs> Spain. Um, I think that would be kind of an, an, an interesting approach uh, and uh, certainly a more near-modern approach to uh, a game. I would also play a, a like ancient, ancient game, like 10,000 BC Dawn of Agriculture game, um, partly because, you know, that that's sort of like a fun, almost like Conan, sword and sorcery type of environment. And at the same time, uh, like we don't really have historical records in any way. So, you know, no one's going to be complaining about how much you're fudging things. <laughs> I do find it interesting that neither of us mentioned World War II or Vietnam, which are extremely popular for historical eras. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm less interested. I'm less interested <laughs> in those time frames just because, I mean, it's well-trod territory, right? Yeah. Cause we grew up in the era of the Vietnam war film, right? Like, every war film that you saw growing up was Vietnam, right? Like the tail end of the World War II probably when you were really young. And then in the 80s and 90s, it was all Vietnam films, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know, like I don't know what I'm going to bring to that that hasn't already been examined by other media. Um, so I can, yeah, sure. Like I can go and like, I can run Platoon. Um, I can maybe even hit the emotional beats of Platoon, but like, I'm never like I never feel like I'm gonna have mastery of that in a way that's gonna be like authentic to every player, I guess. Um, because it because people are just that much more steeped in that media, I guess. 
Yeah, I might do like a Spanish Civil War game, you know, something where you're only in it, not, you know, you weren't drafted, right? You're in it because you're like fighting for a specific cause. That might be interesting, but that becomes less about the war and more about like, you know, how much you're willing to, to give up or sacrifice for a particular belief system. Yeah, I, I think that stuff gets interesting if you play like the Spanish nobility that has broken with the crown, you know, so you become the like the kind of the agitators. Um, I think that has a better, better angle on history anyway. Well, you know, you prob- probably be playing like an American who, who joined up. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> you can jump in. Not playing too. the fascists. <laughs> <laughs> the fascists are the bad guys, even in games. Okay. Okay, well, let's just be clear. <laughs> right, I guess I'm, I'm misremembering the two bad sides of the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> I forgot that the, the crown was opposed by worse people. <laughs> All right, so this next question comes from Cervantes3773. Uh, what are your top three resolution methods that aren't dice and or just top three resolution methods in general? Interesting that aren't dice. Um, well, I think top ge- in general are going to be uh, dice pools, dice pools, and more dice pools. Because rolling more dice is more fun than anything else. Is that not dice? No, that's in general. Oh, okay. I'm just answering oh, yes, the second yes, in general, first. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Big, big fistfuls of like, you know, D8s. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Not D10s. Get out of here. Nobody Wolf. likes you. Um, I, I like the, um, the card drawing initiative in Savage Worlds and Deadlands. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a waste of time. Dice are faster. (laughs) Yes. Dice are faster. Um, I, so one, one reason I like alternatives to dice is that depending on the die that you're using, it's extraordinarily swingy. Right, like yeah. a D one hundred, a D even a D twenty. Um, I far prefer like D six resolution mechanics, just because things are um, not quite as not quite as like fiddly, and and you know the number on the die actually matters. Like there's no difference usually between an eighty seven and an eighty nine on percentile dice. Right. Yeah. So many percentile rolls are ultimately coming down to five point increments. Right. Which is a D twenty. <laughs> Um, so I think my top resolution is cards. Um, like I I still go back to Phoenix Dawn Command is one of my favorite games I've ever played, run, been a part of, um, because it gives you the long-term randomness of like drawing from a card or like a deck of cards. Um, but it gives you the short-term control over when I attempt this thing, I know the cards in my hand that I can play against it. So I know if I can succeed or fail. Right. Um, so you have a lot of determination of, of how you use your resources versus um, the randomness coming in. Does it work? Um, the randomness comes in what's available to me at this moment. Yeah. So to build on that, weirdly, I mean, this isn't used in a ton of, of RPGs, but like Magic the Gathering is similar in that way, too. Like, you know, you have you know what resources you currently have in your hand. But I also like the aspect of, you know, what resources are in the deck that you built um and you get you get sort of like the the idealized rpg version of that from something like phoenix dawn command where you know after a while you are building the deck you are deciding what goes in the the cards that you have the potential to draw 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. The deck building is your character advancement. Exactly. Your yeah. yeah. You're sort of yeah. seeding that. Um, right. So that even though you don't have access to every single ability in any particular moment, you know which ones are likely to come up. And then you know which ones you're more likely to get soon because, you know, you're sort of keeping track of what's in your deck. I, I'm struggling here because I, I can't really think of any other like widespread resolution methods that really work for me. Mm. Um, you know, like I've seen kind of amusing one off type resolutions um like the bidding system within everyone is john i was just gonna say i actually like bidding yeah like so bidding is interesting but it feels bad when you lose um so when then what's the point of bidding if you don't pay you know it's just oh interesting uh, i i'm fine with losing the bid because then i've i keep my my pool right so that i know that i'm more likely to be able to just flat out win in the future right true um i'll let you burn out first and then then i'll take john right um you know i'm I'm like there's the terrible rpg in which you have to literally rip off pieces of your character sheet in order to succeed at things like that's not a scalable thing that's kind of a, a hokey one-shot thing right so did you mention dread already there's jenga and dread yeah I, dread uses jenga like which is fine but like that's, that's i don't like anything a... physical because i'm bad yeah. at those things i i used to be pretty good at jenga um i don't know how good i am at jenga in a crowded convention center on a wobbly table but you know (laughs) can we play uh the giant jenga that um they have it yeah with two by fours yeah exactly right uh that they've got at beer gardens i don't think that makes it easier (laughs) (laughs) now it's your whole body failing instead of just your fingers (laughs) is there a game that uses cornhole as a resolution method because i would play that game yeah, give me a game with beer pong and cornhole, and I have a chance. Or maybe like can jam. No flip cup though. Also terrible at that. <laughs> Combine them all three. It's the worst drinking game ever. <laughs> I don't know. You stumped us, Cervantes. Can't can't come up with three resolution methods I like that aren't dice. <laughs> I guess we'll get back to you on Discord. All right. Next up, Capric Entropy says, with the quarantine times mixing things up. What are some changes to your gaming that you enjoy or don't enjoy? And do you think any of those changes will stick whenever things get back to normal? I like that we have quorum every single week. Yeah, I like I like full attendance. Full attendance is fantastic. However, we have full attendance every single week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and that slows everything down, especially when you add in that you need to incorporate Roll20 and, you know, video chat and all the other things. Um just makes things more difficult and slower and it just adds a another layer of abstraction to every interaction um so i do not enjoy video conference related delays um i just like roll 20 in general online dice rollers that we're forced to use now because i like rolling my physical dice i like rolling them at a table i like seeing other people roll their physical dice on a physical table but you know what are you going to do um, will that stick around? I think probably what will happen is once we're allowed to meet up again, there will be times when someone can't physically make it, but they will be able to dial in. And then we might just be like, okay, actually, everyone, let's just, you know, play from home every two months or whatever so that we have quorum. Yeah, maybe we'll miss fewer games this way. Yeah, because I think before we probably played, honestly, three quarters of of our scheduled games just because you know we couldn't get quorum for whatever reason right as far as what changes will stick uh i mean obviously the attendance thing is not going to last forever 
um like you said some of the willingness to use remote play as a as an alternative i think is yeah that's probably doable um i don't know i think i think we're we're at the point where we've gotten about as much out of quarantine gaming as we could get and i would like to go back to regular gaming now i feel like it is harder to run especially run and stick with a long campaign while quarantine gaming like it's it's i feel like there's more momentum there's more inertia when you're meeting regularly uh so i kind of wonder if we are going to be able to sustain you know the the campaigns that we rotate through that are like you know two years three years long um it feels like we'll probably jump around six to twelve weeks in one game or system and then you know six twelve in another and we'll just sort of see what happens and i i want to make sure that we we do still play uh those like long uh multiple arc campaigns i also hate that i basically need to uh cook dinner between 5 30 when work sometimes kind of ends and 6 30 when we're supposed to start playing but i'll probably just get a bluetooth headset and finish cooking while we're you know doing the recap i cannot imagine cooking for more than an hour that sounds awful all right next question comes from merc how would you all run a game in sarlona in fifth edition especially considering how much psionics is tied to that setting Uh, so sarlona is of course one of the continents in eberron that is a good question uh kind of already did it um minor spoiler for for gates of morning but people are gonna go to sarlona at some point um yeah uh, basically all the powers that run sarlona are psionic um they are uh run by evil creatures from the plane of dreams i mean we had a psionic sorcerer jim was playing uh, vesicot a psionic um, well, a scion in uh, Gates of Morning, and he just reflavored a wild magic sorcerer. And I think that's probably what I would do at this point. Like for a player character who comes from Sarlona, just reflavor things as psionic. And um, we've talked about this before. We did that in Dark Sun, you know, just, hey, is this arcane magic? Is that psionic or is it like actual arcane magic? And then, you know, that means that if it's psionic, you don't have to use um, components, but just, you know, try not to break things with that. Um, and then for the monsters, like in, in 5e, you don't need to decide what the, you know, what the power system is, is coming from. You don't need to like actually stat somebody out with PowerPoints or whatever. You can just say they can do this, this, you know, they can use, um, agitate matter, you know, three times per encounter or whatever, you know, before they like quote unquote run out of the PowerPoints on the player side, it it doesn't really make a difference in, in terms of like their immersion. I think it's going to be a while before we actually get like a 5e psionic system because Wizards does seem pretty intent on having it be something that people like, that most people like, and there has never been a psionic system in Dungeons and Dragons that most people liked. <laughs> it's always either uh, too esoteric or too similar to arcane magic. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no middle ground. Right. It's too hot or it's too cold. Right. All right, Cervantes3773 sneaking back in with one more question. What is your favorite uncommonly used monsters and or encounters? So I think there are probably two that spring to mind. Um, I really like red caps. They actually did show up in, I think, Descent into Avernus. 
um, but I, I rarely saw them before that. They're small, chaotic, evil fae. They're basically uh, evil murder gnomes. They uh, they have like, you know, slouchy Papa Smurf hats, except those hats are red because they're dipped in human blood. And they wear like these big iron boots and they show up where there's been like horrible bloodshed. And I like that, you know, you might mistake them for a halfling or David the gnome or something. And then it turns out they have a giant scythe and they hit very, very hard. And then they stomp your head into the ground with their iron spiked boots. Right. <laughs> They're pretty metal. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've talked about this before, but I really like hags. Uh, I know they're not super uncommon, but I like them because typically a hag is evil, but intelligent and um, wise enough to negotiate with. Um, they never hit you from the front. They will always hit you from the side kind of thing. Um, and a lot of times, like, lower level characters can get in over their heads by dealing with a hag. Um, so I like them as sort of that, like, not super common but you know somewhat uncommon kind of uh mid-level kind of threat um and then the the actual uncommonly used monster that i love are grung who are little tree frog people who are just the art is too cute and therefore i like them too much but they will absolutely ruin your day if used appropriately yeah, they're <laughs> little poison dart frogs they'll <laughs> poison the tips of their arrows and roast you for dinner <laughs> <laughs> They're Ewoks. Um, <laughs> Ishan, they're Ewoks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're leaping Ewoks. But somehow, you know, slimy instead of uh, instead of furry. Ewoks are slimy. I don't know what you're talking no, about. That's right. Ewoks are slimy and gross. Yeah. Um, I also like giant, uh, like world size or kaiju type monsters. I always want more of those, um, epic level monsters. And the ones, the ones that I really like are the. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly. The Hecatonkiris, which are the hundred-handed, fifty-headed titans from Greek myth. Uh, they're also called the Centimanes. So if you play Lancer, um, uh, IPSN I has a well. They really like them. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot, a lot of references, um, and I like them because they're huge and and giant and really freaking weird. Uh, but they're also one of those puzzle monsters. Like they've got a hundred hands, so they can hold a hundred great swords. And if you're, you know, in three point five, if you were large enough, they could hit you with every one of those great swords. And even if you were a normal sized creature, medium size, they could hit you with like fifteen great swords. <laughs> so that's not something you can face head on, right? They also had boulders and stuff, so they had ranged attacks. You can't just run up and and hit that thing, no matter how many hit points you have they're going to kill you. So you've got to figure out some way to like distract them or, or blind them or use their advantages as a disadvantage. All right, well, speaking of monsters and encounters, Ishin, this episode is brought to you by Cobalt Press and the pocket edition of the Creature Codex. You can fit giant creatures in a relatively small book. If you love the Creature Codex so much, you want to keep it close to your heart, you can do that. With nearly 400 foes from the original Creature Codex, we're just half the price and half the size at $24.99. The smaller softcover version of the book is both more convenient and more portable. And it's got great imaginative creatures like the Keg Golem, the Shark Bowl Ooze, the Bar Brawl, the Hierophant Lich, Wasteland Dragons, and hundreds more all of which are, have been playtested and are built by some of the industry's best designers. 
So you can find out more at www.cobaltpress.com and tell them DSPN sent you. All right, let's dig into some email questions. This one's from a friend of the show, Sally. Well, hang on, hang Yo, on. Sally. Everyone here is a friend of the show, Isha. They sent us mailbag <laughs> questions. Except for, except for you know, you, who, who knows yeah, who you, know you are. Who you, you know are. you did, too. Yeah, yeah. So Sally says, congrats on your fifth anniversary. You guys rule, and so does TPT. That's nice. My question is, for each of you, what's your favorite mechanic of any tabletop role-playing game you've ever played or just read about or encountered? But if that's too hard to decide or too loaded, then maybe give us the most interesting or surprising or cool mechanic you've encountered in an RPG. So I think my favorite mechanic, uh, (laughs) unfortunately, I made the mistake of talking to Sally about this uh, after I read her question. (laughs) So this might be a bit of a repeat. Um, But my favorite mechanic of any ttrpg i've ever played is definitely the devil's bargain um this is the thing from forge in the dark games where if you fail a roll you can request a devil's bargain and then the gm has the leeway to offer you something incredibly painful to get what you want um you know the the each game has suggestions for what shape that might take and how severe that might be you know but it kind of scales based on what are you asking to accomplish here Um, And if you would like that, then you can always do it. Um, I love the idea of taking narrative control back uh, and making things worse for my character um, because I I really like that's one of the things that I really enjoy about those Forge in the Dark games is like how much bad stuff will befall your character that you'll just like grit your teeth and go on, right? Like that's part of the game is that like bad stuff happens to you and you just overcome it. Um, yeah, I like it sort of turns turns failure into a resource that you can use. I think mine is probably, I mean, this is an, this is an oldie, but a goodie. Uh, force points. Uh, Genesis uses them, you know, FFG Star Wars. Uh, a lot of other games use a similar mechanic. Basically, there's a pool of, a pool of essentially narrative control. So meta-currency. In the, in the middle of the table. Meta-currency is your favorite mechanic. Yeah, basically. Um, and players can use them to get bonuses on rolls or, you know, to make something happen in the in the game. But the part I like about it is then it then flips so that it goes into the GM's pool and now they can use it to make something more difficult or to, you know, turn turn something awry. And when the GM does that, it then swings back to the player. So there's always like a, a push and pull of uh, this, this resource, you know, determining where the story is going to go. Um, you know, you could make that up on your own, just like make sure that the characters have narrative control, make sure that the the GM is like giving people opportunities. But I, I like that you sort of have monetized it so people feel like, you know, there's a reminder on the table, oh, I could do this. Uh, and then also there's, you, you like continue that that back and forth, that that like passing of the baton that leads to the best kind of stories where it is kind of like everyone sitting around a campfire and taking turns uh, adding bits to this story. Yeah, the I think the thing that makes it work so well in like Genesis and Star Wars um, is that there are a lot of character sheet mechanics tied to it. So it's a difficult thing to accidentally forget about or ignore. Um, you know, a lot of abilities and things are activated by spending your force point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's what makes it better than just a like a regular meta currency that you would drop in any other game, you know, like um, like an inspiration, for example, because <laughs> a lot of times it does the same thing yeah. that inspiration does, except that 
inspiration is clearly tacked on and you know those uh the the force points are really not they're they're kind of integrated into your sheet um and then <laughs> if there's if there's a good meta currency there's also bad meta currency and that is wrath and glory which has like five of them and they're all annoying and they're all synonyms for each other it's impossible to keep track of uh well there are a lot of other problems with the the system in in wrath and glory yeah too much of a good thing is a bad thing I also like uh, with force points, you know, the GM uses them like quote unquote against you, right? Um, to make something more difficult, but it takes a bit of the sting out of it because now you are also getting a resource. Like you get paid for it. Yeah. So then the most interesting, surprising, cool mechanic, uh, I was very surprised around the deck building mechanics of Phoenix Dawn Command. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons I like it so much um, because that is just a thing that you just had not seen up to that point. Um, and the the way that you add and remove cards as you level up, um, that introduces that deck building element I thought was like a, a fortuitous thing to uncover serendipitous even I love the whole concept of Phoenix Dawn Command the you know you come back seven times and then the game is over like that that sort of like is ideal for me but in terms of like a specific mechanic I think I really like the hot swappable character building of Lancer it's not something that I've seen before where you know, you don't select a, a single class and then level up in that. You select uh, basically a mech class, like a, a license. And you can choose different levels in them. Like multi-classing is not only encouraged, but is is necessary, essentially. But every at every, not even just level, at every fight, you can respec where you change out the, the different gear, which essentially changes out the different abilities that you have. You can, you know... It's like being able to swap out your fighter's action surge to, you know, uh, move in like a, a volley from your ranger because you have like five core abilities. And one one thing that does is it keeps the number of things that you're capable of doing in any combat to like a manageable level rather than having this massive amount of bloat that you'll get in, you know, high level D&D characters. Uh, but it also means that every single time you can feel like you're playing a very different character even though, you know, you have still winnowed down all the possibilities to, you know, something much smaller than is initially available. Those are all the things I dislike about Lancer. Moving on. <laughs> uh, this one comes from Alan Hall. I am about to play in a Descent into Avernus campaign, and my character is going to be a Norseman from the middle of the Viking Age. I am playing a homebrew caster, but that is not important. My question is, how would you play the character as coming from a vastly different world? And then secondarily, what is the weirdest character idea you've ever thought of, whether or not you have played it? If I'm playing the fish out of water, uh, I think the, the first tip is to fully engage with the premise. So don't... Um, don't be the person who is constantly asking them to like explain basic things about D&D &D to your character because you're quote unquote not from here. Um, kind of accept that like some stuff is weird, but you can pick it up and go. Um, constantly being amazed by very basic things in a D&D &D world is going to get tiresome after one session. So keep it to that limit. Um, but if you want to characterize that, I would probably go about doing it with like using cognates that make sense for your character, right? So, um, the, you know, map the Pantheon to the Norse Pantheon, for example, right? The, uh, the, the devils and demons that you're facing must be servants of, you know, uh, Loki or 
you know, well, the demons anyway, <laughs> right? Something like that, so that you're you're sort of um, tying it into the history of this character, right? Like in their belief system, but you're not slowing down play at the table by making things more confusing or having them explain relatively rote, you know, basic understanding. Right, like, oh, Avernus. Oh, you mean Niflheim. Okay, right. yeah, I understand what we're talking about. Sure. Right. You know, and you, as the character, basically reskins everything. Um, one thing I will say is that Descent into Avernus in particular is very much about characters becoming fish out of water because you start in, like, Forgotten Realms in the real world and then you eventually make your way uh, to the first layer of the nine hells and things get wacky and crazy and weird because a lot of it's almost it's a little bit planescapey uh where you've got these demons and monsters who have their own society and it does not work like normal society so you could have a fish out of water while everyone else is also out of water so one way to deal with this is sort of it's just kind of lean into it you understand what's going on you were a viking who has been transported transported to like the 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 10th realm or whatever, right? Uh, it's not that freaky. I mean, it's, it's weird, but you've heard stories about this. You may even be an expert about this. You know what's going on, whether or not the character is actually right. You know, they could be completely wrong about something. They could be right about it and just have different names for it is, is totally up to you. But I kind of like the idea of like, you know, the Viking who's shown up on the first layer of the, the nine hells and is like, I don't worry. I absolutely know what's going on. Oh, I know how to kill this thing. This is, you know, this is just a different kind of troll. Oh yeah, no, I like that a lot. The uh, you're you're accidentally a fish in water because you are steeped in the lore of the place you're actually going to, whereas the rest of the players probably know very little about the nine hells. Right. You get back to Waterdeep, and that'll be confusing and right, weird. Exactly. <laughs> These buildings are so tall. <laughs> how did you get the walls over ten feet tall? <laughs> why does that person have scales all over them um in terms of the weirdest character um i mean the the beast of burden exists which wields a dead cow in each hand yeah you did that uh <laughs> i mean in terms of ones i've played i played a remora named coach in a um um uh, what's rich howard's game called Descent into Midnight. Uh, Descent into Midnight. Yeah, so I played a Remora named Coach who would attach to um, other characters and make them better at what they did. So I was a, a psychic, literally a psychic football coach for underwater football uh, on our adventure. I don't know how that works, <laughs> but it's Descent into Midnight, so somehow it did. Yeah, I was wondering if uh, just our DIM characters were going to come up here. Yeah. <laughs> Every character you you build in that game is probably the weirdest character you've ever built and right. played. Hive mind, ph phytoplankton, etc. <laughs> That's just normal. It's normal and accepted and it's fine. Let's see. I've played a bunch of weirdo characters. I mean, mostly, oh, I played um, a droid that used the force, which is totally not a thing that's allowed except that one time. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Um, I wish that had lasted longer because we never quite got to the, well, we did get to the the weird reveal where people were like, how was this droid using force lightning? And then, and then George Lucas showed up and was like, mm, actually, George, uh, droids are allowed to use force lightning if they want to, because um, I did it once in my fanfic. I, uh, I had the GM on my side and it was all good. Although apparently later I was going to get possessed by the spirit of Palpatine, but that's how every Star Wars game ends. I, apparently. <laughs> that's how every Star Wars franchise ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I did play a Jedi who just used Force Lightning all the time, pretty much exclusively as their only weapon, but they weren't evil. Um, that's the thing you can do in Star Wars Saga. Must have done a lot of atonement. Uh, no, no atonement necessary. Oh, okay. It was, yeah, it was, it was, see, it was weird. It was okay, weird. Saga. But they were like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna use Force Lightning to jumpstart this engine. I mean, okay, all right. <laughs> I'm back on board. <laughs> Uh, all right, too many to list. Uh, let's keep going. <laughs> uh, this next one comes from Nate. Uh, happy anniversary. My question is, can you give a little more love to Phoenix Dawn Command? <laughs> <laughs> no, <series>. absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> setting series, perhaps, or diceless systems, or part of a discussion of matching systems with different settings than they were built for. Keith Baker talked about Phoenix Dakani Command on his blog a couple years back, which I've actually run several sessions for some friends. Playing in ancient Dakani Empire as Phoenix is fighting the Dalkir. Thanks as always. I mean, I love Phoenix Dakani Command. Um, I like anything that elevates, you know, goblins and hobgoblins in Eberron. You know, sort of sort of built for that. You know, they're like cool artificers and warlords. Um, I mean, Shane. We haven't done this yet, but I think we probably should do a setting episode on Phoenix Dawn Command because, like, game system aside, cards aside, all of that, it's a really cool setting. It is a cool setting. Yeah, we could do that. I don't know why we haven't done that yet. Uh, but, yeah, no, we'll do it. Um, fortunately, Phoenix Dawn Command was just on sale on an Amazon board game sale, and I know a couple people picked it up. So um, it's also one of those games that like I've had on the shelf forever, and finding four players and only four players to play it with has been what's kept me from actually getting to do it. Um, but we play tested it. Um, mm -hmm. It's a great game. I'm very excited to do it. It's still on my... like. I guess it's a gaming bucket list item now. Um, but, yeah, no, I <laughs> clearly don't mind talking about it. I love that game. <laughs> And Exploring Eberron is out now, too, uh, which has a lot more information about the Dakani Empire and, you know, how the remnants of it are operating in present-day Corvair. So there's a lot of fodder right now to dig through to play those kinds of games. So that is a great idea. Yeah, the Dakani Empire is such like a tragic story, too. Mm -hmm. Like, they save the world from the Dalkir, but then all of their people are scattered and, like, subjugated, more or less. Right. It was a super Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. Thanks a lot, jerks, humans, Galifar, bastards. All right, next question. Series of questions from Roman in Melbourne, Australia. Almost as far as you can possibly get from where we are right now. Hi, Ishin and Shane. I love that you're still going and have been listening since the start. That's awesome. Thanks so much. In your game recaps, especially your rogue trader ones, the tone you relay is one of slightly over-the-top or even a little murder hoboey. But is that how these games played out at the time, or was this a bit performative for the podcast? That is a great question, actually. That is a really good question about how those recaps work. Um, so, and that's also a part of how our group plays, is that we do a lot of interpretation of events kind of after the fact a lot, um, where, you know, what was specifically said or specifically done is sort of recontextualized. Um, particularly in our recaps <laughs> to make the narrative smooth out a bit um, because we do run into this problem of 
you know, we don't necessarily have every player at every session. We don't necessarily have every character's perspective represented at every session, right? And so we just kind of bake in that, like, there's going to be some light retconning and, and perspective shift that occurs with events um, post facto. So I think I think the recaps themselves are probably capturing the tone of our game. Uh, which is that like the rogue traders are highly entitled people with vast resources who just need to get to those resources. <laughs> um, and they truly have like murder hobo in their heart. Like they have no loyalty to anyone but their own aggrandizement. They only care about getting their next armor or weapon. Um, they have, you know, tens of thousands of people working for them that they offer almost no consideration to at all. Um, that is very on point for all of your narcissistic monster characters. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's because you can kind of go a couple of ways with a 40K game. You can either lean into the horror, right, the the awfulness of, you know, living in, in the Imperium. Um, and that, you know, that's basically a grimdark game or like Imperial Guard. But since we're rogue traders, we went in the opposite direction and played like wacky hijinks Caiaphas Kane, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that was built into the, the system. Like, you know, we did get in trouble where we went all murder hobo in that one shot that turned into a four shot uh, and like, you know, killed the the governor of um, like a, a random planet, a no name planet that doesn't matter at all. Until it became like <laughs> the, the cornerstone <laughs> of your economic footing. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there's there aren't aren't consequences, but the. The conceit of that game was that they, the party is are people who can walk over other people and are sort of sort of expected to do that because that's the way the setting works. Now, in the Eberron recaps, it's a little bit different. The way that our table actually works is we shift tone a lot. You know, like the tone of the game itself when people are speaking in character tends to be a little more serious, um, but but we're not a table that can stay serious for like four hours straight. You know, we, we only really do that in like one shots um, or, you know, on streams or something like that at the table. There are always jokes. There are always random things. There's always meta talk. And sometimes we'll bring some of that meta talk into the recap, right? So the characters have decided, you know, we're, we're going to leave, you know, Sergeant Bach behind the, the real reason is like, you know, he's tired and, and, you know, isn't a fighter up to on par with us anymore. And we're going to go do something really dangerous and he's going to stay here. And the meta reason is, of course, like the rescue arc is over and like you got you got the gold and the the like XP for returning the NPC safely. And the next question, what has been your favorite campaign, not one shot that you were involved in and what made it your favorite? The setting or plot or players or system or time and place in your life. Thank you for being one of my highlight. Thank you for being one of my highlight podcasts each and every week. That's lovely. Uh, favorite campaign is tough. Um, that's like choosing your favorite kid, you know? Um, so so easy. Like, yeah, the good one. Because um, I've run multiple campaigns that I liked for different reasons. Um, I've played in different campaigns that I liked for different reasons. Um, parts of some campaigns are fantastic and then they don't always all come together at the end. So it's, it's just a tough thing to say. I mean, I really enjoyed running rogue trader. Um, I really enjoyed running band of blades for our stream. Um, like I thought like band of blades was probably the better campaign, um, in that it was a little more final, um, and a lot more focused. 
Uh, but I, I really enjoyed both. So I, I guess like for ones that I've run, it's probably one of those two. My favorite campaign that I've ever been involved in is probably still the fourth edition um, version of Dead Gods that I played in more than a decade ago at this point. Uh, we went from levels one to 30 um, through basically the general gist of the second edition module, uh, actually both Great Modron March and Dead Gods, uh, which were you know basically completely uh, redone for fourth edition by our GM. So I really enjoyed that. That's also you know my favorite character that I've ever played, Solomon the Stag, and also you know Planescape and, and Monty Cook. So what's not to love? In terms of what makes it your favorite, um, like even as I'm I'm considering all the different campaigns that we've played in that that I did enjoy, like you know the setting, plot, players, system, and time and place of your life are all important. Um, sometimes the time and place in in your life is maybe the most important because like I think my favorite of mm -hmm. all time is probably like the campaign we played in high school, which doesn't even have enough like thematic. Uh, like connection setting plot anything to really really unify it or give it any justification but it's like it's the people that I most wanted to be spending my time with right at the time um, doing the thing that we all enjoyed together like I don't know like that's the point um, it doesn't like the other stuff is nice if you can get it but um, that was it was just role playing playing role playing games for the sake of playing role playing games yeah, till the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, it was great not to have really any other responsibilities to get in the way of just gaming. Yeah, and, like, our parents would come and, like, bring us snacks and stuff while we played, you know? Like, it was great. <laughs> Couldn't afford any accessories, but... Yeah, you know, well, I've spent my whole life using Warhammer miniatures as my D&D minis. <laughs> you can only afford one. <laughs> I think uh, I think that's enough questions for now. We are, we are deep into this uh, already. Who knew that we could just keep going on and on and on and on? But remember, uh, if you want to get in on a future mailbag, just send those questions over and, uh, you know, we'll we'll hide them away until uh, we get to some sort of round number. Either round number of questions or round number of episodes. Who knows? All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? That is me ruffling around inside a giant mailbag, scraping the bottom desperately looking for one more. But it's not there. And I'm very glad. All right. <laughs> well, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week in The Forge, we're building Buffy Summers, but you may know her as the Vampire Slayer. I'm Dracula. Get out. So, you know, what does she do? Well, you know, you've watched all eight seasons of Buffy, of course. Assume that I didn't. Okay, well, uh, she is the Slayer, uh, the latest in a long line of supernaturally empowered teen girls who uh, kill supernatural entities. So she is super strong, super fast, uh, very quick reflexes, um, 
strong willpower, has come back from the dead uh, several times, is extremely proficient in hand-to-hand, uh, improvised, and uh, weapon combat. So she's a, she's a killer. She's a killer. Okay. So what's the build? It is Totem Barbarian 3, Samurai Fighter 15, Ranger 1, Fiend Warlock 1. So we're going to start off here. Of course, Buffy's a human. She's a variant human, so she gets a feat. And we are taking Tavern Brawler, which means that with a plus one from variant human and from Tavern Brawler, she starts off with a plus two strength. Okay. I've always thought that Sarah Michelle Geller was slightly buffed, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So first level, we're going to take Ranger 1. Get that out of the way because uh, you don't want any more Ranger levels. This gives her all weapon proficiencies because, of course, the Slayer is proficient with every weapon known to man. This also gives her dexterity saving throws. Very useful. Uh, and a favorite enemy, probably undead. You could go with Fiend if you want. Uh, but, you know, this is level 1 Buffy, so it's probably vampires. And she gets a favorite terrain, which um, I'm going to go with, like, uh, the Valley. Right? Isn't that is that where Sunnydale is? Sure. <laughs> Somewhere in the greater LA area. <laughs> All right, next up it's eight levels of fighter. This will give her a fighting style, I think probably dueling, which is extra damage when armed with just one weapon. Uh, you know, she's usually just fighting with whatever's at hand, but you know, a wooden stake, uh, chair leg, whatever it is, extra damage. Plus, she gets a second wind, so she's able to knit back uh, some of those wounds. She's a fast healer. Uh, then you'll also get action surge and extra attack, as well as two ASIs from this dip. Um, and then we'll get fighting spirit, which three times per day will grant advantage on weapon attacks until the end of turn and uh, five temporary HP. Also, elegant courtier, which gives her wisdom mod to persuasion checks because... Buffy's very persuasive and probably most importantly gives proficiency in wisdom saving throws, which is going to be very good at resisting mind control. Mm -hmm. Next, we take a one level dip into Warlock. Uh, Warlock? Shane, I know, of course, you're thinking, wait a minute, Buffy doesn't cast spells. That's Willow. That's exactly what I was definitely thinking. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Later, it's revealed that uh, the Slayers get their power from a ritual that uh, combine their uh, strength with, with that of a demon essentially so this is not buffy being uh like uh, having a a patron who controls her activities this is uh buffy gaining her strength from a fiend because on a kill she'll get charisma modifier temp hp for the times when she doesn't have fighting spirit temp hp left and she doesn't cast spells so of course we're going to reflavor them she gets two cantrips and one spell per short rest i like blade ward which like remember if you're playing a buffy game if you're playing buffy like most of the time you're not fighting in hand-to-hand combat most of the time you're going to high school and (laughs) and you're trying not to show off that you're super strong and letting everyone know that you're the slayer so if you're getting into a a fight or something like that or you know you're about to get hit by a car you blade ward and you know you take it on the chin right true strike is also good here even though true strike is mostly terrible but you know there's a, a time when you know there's gonna be a fight after the commercial break but the fight hasn't started yet it's a good time to true strike. Yeah, or, you know, because you're in high school, if there's a food fight in the cafeteria, you want to make sure that you can <laughs> throw mashed potatoes at the right person. Why not? For the spells that you can cast, Expeditious Retreat is good because Buffy can run very, very quickly if she wants to. Or maybe Protection from Evil and Good, which prevents possession 
uh, from things like Undead and Celestials. Although, you know, you're probably going to forget to cast that relatively often because I'm pretty sure she gets possessed, All you know, as a plot point. <laughs> <laughs> it's also why we couldn't take Paladin because she definitely doesn't have divine sense because Angel is just right there in front of her and she's like, I have no idea that you're a vampire. Is he creepy old? He's creepy old, right? She's a high school kid. He's creepy old. I we're just losing all of our listeners. Yes, yeah, he is. Okay, he is. all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bar- it's not you. <laughs> Barbarian is up next. Three levels will get rage twice a day for some uh, damage resistance and extra damage. Uh, we'll get danger sense, um, which prevents you from being surprised. Reckless attack, which gives you self advantage at the cost of granting advantage, and then totem barbarian will take bear totem and get uh, resistance to all damage types, not just the bludgeoning, piercing, and the other one slashing uh yeah you know her only weakness then is psychic damage which of course like it's really words that hurt the most yeah that that checks out for a high school kid (laughs) yeah (laughs) she basically wins with power friendship so (laughs) you know her emotions fuel her her power that feels like a rage to me Uh, and then we're just going to polish off the fighter levels she'll get three attacks indomitable twice per day which lets her re-roll a saving throw she's already got two good saves Tireless spirit shall refresh one fighting spirit every time you roll initiative. And then rapid strike. Uh, once per turn, she can convert advantage on an attack roll into an additional attack instead. And of course, she can do this at will, even if she's out of fighting spirit, just by using reckless attack and just do four attacks or uh, seven with uh, action surge. You know, why not? And, you know, she can do this all with like a, a chair or, you know, a dead demon. Yeah, but doesn't the second attack also get the reckless attack advantage then? So like aren't you really only you're you're getting an extra advantage attack to roll one without advantage? I believe the second one would get your reckless attack. So you're rolling one with no advantage and then one with advantage. Yeah, so it's just a when you use reckless attack it's just a, once per turn you get an extra get a free advantage attack. attack. Great. <laughs> All right, before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And once again, just thank you to our uh, our new and old patrons alike uh, for making it possible to keep doing this for five years. That is absurd, but your support is uh, is very much appreciated. Absolutely. All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are going to have a cover-to-cover review of Keith Baker's newest Eberron sourcebook, Exploring Eberron. Well, that's it for episode 262 of Total Party Thrill. I hope it lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>